Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Glyphosate is the most widely used herbicide in the world. You probably know it as Roundup. Since the 1970s, it's been used by farmers from coast to coast, and it was patented right here in St. Louis. It's made Monsanto, now Bayer Monsanto, a fortune. But that widespread use comes with a cost. No fewer than 18,400 people have filed lawsuits against Bayer Monsanto by its own account. They're alleging Roundup gave them cancer, particularly non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. TV ads like this may sound familiar to you. This is a legal alert. Farm workers, landscapers, and homeowners who've been exposed to the weed killer Roundup may be at risk for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or other cancers of the blood. If you or someone you love has been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you may be entitled to a substantial money settlement, but time may be running out. Time is limited to file a claim. You may be entitled to significant compensation. Call now. Investigative journalist Carrie Gillum has been researching glyphosate and Roundup for 20 years. She writes about what she's learned in her new book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. She'll be speaking in St. Louis this Friday at 1 p.m. Her talk is titled Monsanto Trials and Monsanto Papers. It's hosted by Washington University. It is free and open to the public. Joining me today to talk about it is Carrie Gillum. Carrie, welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. We should mention that Monsanto is not currently, but has been, a corporate sponsor of St. Louis Public Radio in the past. Uh, Carrie Gillum, can you set the scene for us? Who's using Roundup and how? Oh, my goodness. Um, just about everyone. Glyphosate-based <laughs> <laughs> uh, based herbicides um, are historic in their use. They, Glyphosate, as you said, is the most widely used herbicide in the world uh, and historically the most widely used agrochemical uh, it is used by farmers on, on their fields. It's sprayed directly on many different crops used to feed humans and to feed livestock, corn and soybeans, uh, wheat and, and oats in particular. It's used by golf courses, uh, you know, for management of that nice, neat, uh, green, you know, course. Uh, it's used by residential um, users, homeowners, you know, on their lawns and to keep their gardens free from weeds. Uh it, it is pervasive. It's sprayed over forests a lot uh, for forestry management and, and used by utilities uh, to keep, you know, keep their um, their sites free from weeds. So it is uh, it is very common. Our U.S. government has, has documented it even in rainfall um, because it is so pervasive. It's found in our in our own urine um, usually. So it's a very pervasive, ubiquitous pesticide. And the idea was always that this was incredibly safe. What was the original sales pitch to farmers? Right. Well, it you know still is the sales pitch to farmers that this is the safest uh, way for them to kill weeds in their fields. That it is so safe, uh, almost safe enough to drink, safer than table salt. Uh, the pitch to you know homeowners and others is, is typically that it's so safe that you don't have to worry about. In any protective gear, wearing gloves or closed closed-toed shoes or or long sleeves, uh, you know, you see advertisements that show people out, you know, wearing shorts and flip-flops, spraying this stuff. Um, but what we know from the science and from a lot of Monsanto's own internal documents are that it's like many other pesticides. It's it's dangerous. You need to know that it's dangerous. You need to know the risks of it. Uh, and quite a lot of science does tie it to a range of human health problems, uh, including non-Hodgkin lymphoma. 
So tell us about that. I mean, on one hand, we've got the sales pitch that says this is as safe as salt. And yet you're saying that there is science that says it's a whole lot more dangerous. Is, is this something that's been done in the laboratory with rats? So I mean, how do, how do we know that it is dangerous? So the, the way that, you know, science is conducted, I mean, there's many different things. Toxicology, uh, as you're referring to, studies that are done on animals, rats and mice and things like that. There's a whole array of studies that have been done, toxicology studies. There's also epidemiology studies that have been done over many, many years. This, this uh, glyphosate was patented in 1974. Roundup was introduced. Other glyphosate-based herbicides, Ranger Pro and other things, um, there are hundreds of products that use glyphosate that are sold around the world. So you have epidemiology studies, toxicology, and mechanistic data, which is studies that are done, you know, in, in test tubes and in the laboratory uh, on cells. And the weight of evidence, according to, you know, World Health Organization top cancer scientists, the weight of all of that scientific evidence led to a classification of glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen with a specific association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And that is a, a fairly so, recent determination. Was that 2015 that the World Health Organization said that? That was 2015, but you have to understand they didn't do new research. What they did was they looked at research that's been done, you know, from the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, again, decades of, of research that has been conducted by scientists around the world. So what took so long? I mean, as you say, people were using this thing for decades wearing flip-flops. How do we get to the point that 30 years later, we suddenly find out that the World Health Organization is saying, yeah, this this is a problem. You could get cancer. Right. Well, I mean, what they do, this is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, uh, and it's part of the World Health Organization. And they look at substances that are widely used. Uh, they can't look at everything, you know, uh, under the sun. Obviously, I mean, there are 85,000 some chemicals, you know, used out there. Um, but what they do is when something becomes widely used, as glyphosate has, uh, they they decide that they should review it and they should take a look at it. So they um, announced, or didn't really announce, but they determined that they were going to start looking at this in 2014 and pulled together their, their international team of cancer scientists and started pulling together the literature and in March of 2015 is when they announced uh, their classification. But we've had signs. I mean, we didn't really know it um, back in the 80s. But one of the, the studies that Monsanto gave to the EPA in 1983, it was a, it was a study on, on mice. And Monsanto turned this study into the EPA. And, you know, the EPA scientists said, gosh, this looks like it causes cancer because these mice that are being dosed with glyphosate are getting these rare tumors. And the mice in the control group who aren't being dosed with glyphosate are not getting these rare tumors. So this looks like it causes cancer. And Monsanto itself gave this study to the EPA. It was a study, yes, that Monsanto paid for. And they had to turn this in as part of the registration process. And, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating to look at, and, and this is the corruption of science part of the book, what you see is that Monsanto pressured the EPA, the higher-ups, over many years and used many different tactics to get the EPA managers to suppress the opinions of their own scientists and to side with Monsanto over EPA's scientists. And that's happened, you know, repeatedly over and over again. So um, there's very much uh, a political um, pressure 
and a political angle um, to to all of this, and uh, you know, it's very disturbing because it it shows us um, in this one example, and there are many, many more, that the EPA is really not protecting the public, uh, that they're protecting corporate profits. And again, you know, I, I cite many of the other examples in my book, Whitewash, but uh, Monsanto is really just a really good example. So they're the poster child for this bigger problem. One of the things I found striking in your book is you had a, a decision, I think the EPA made in 2013, that allowed, um, it, it sort of changed what sort of particles of, of this were considered safe uh-huh. in the food supply. And this is happening um, during the Obama administration, everyone wants to say these are the glory days. And yet, as far as Monsanto was concerned, they were able to get what they wanted there just just as well as they are in the Trump administration. Yeah, I do think the Trump administration has shown, you know, they don't even try to hide it. You know, they don't even try to pretend that they, uh, you know, are not uh, buddying up to, to the corporate uh, players. Um, but yes, in 2013, it's a bipartisan problem that we have. Uh, Monsanto, and, it, and it's been more than in 2013, many times um, when Monsanto has wanted to have new uses or increased uses of its glyphosate herbicides by farmers, um, which is going to result in this chemical being in our food, residues of, of this pesticide and many others are commonly found in, in the food that we eat and feed our children. And they have to go to the EPA, and they have legal limits that are set. And so what Monsanto has done is gone back repeatedly and said, you know what, could you please make those legal limits higher so that more residues, you know, higher concentrations of residues can be allowed in the food, and the EPA says yes. For the record, we did invite Bayer Monsanto to join us on the show. They politely declined, but they did give us a statement. Here's what they had to say. Quote, none of the documents cherry-picked by plaintiffs' lawyers and their surrogates contradict the findings of the extensive body of science and conclusions of leading health regulators that glyphosate-based herbicides are safe when used as directed and that glyphosate is not carcinogenic. Instead, they show that Monsanto's activities were intended to ensure there was a fair, accurate, and science-based dialogue about the company and its products. We take the safety of our products and our reputation very seriously and work to ensure that everyone, from regulators to customers to other stakeholders, has accurate and balanced information to make decisions about our products. Carrie Gillum, I'm sure there's a lot you would say in response to that, but um, let's just go to the story that you open your book with. You, you start by telling the story of Jack McCall, and in some ways, this is he's got the life that many people dream of having. He's got this idyllic little non-factory farm farm and then things take a turn. Tell us what tell us a little bit about what happened to Jack. Sure. Yes, um and you're right. I mean his farm, gosh, I it is the most beautiful. It looks like it came out of a storybook, you know, in these rolling hills of Cambria, California, and uh, you know, it was his parents' farmstead and then his and he was leaving it for his children and he has orchards and, and avocados and all sorts of things. And he wanted his his um, produce, his, the products that he was growing, to be very healthy and to be free of pesticides. Um, the only thing he ever used in terms of a synthetic chemical was Roundup because he believed it was so safe. Um, so he would spray it around, you know, the orchard all around, and his dog would romp beside him um, for years and years and years. And he used a backpack sprayer and didn't use protective gear. And, uh, you know, eventually the dog developed uh, cancer lymphoma and died, and then Jack developed a very rare form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and you know suffered um, just a pretty brutal and fast 
death. And, uh, you know, and so I open with his widow um, on the farm, and she's recounting all of this. And it just, I wanted to tell their story because I want people to understand that it's not just a lot of science and, you know, residue information and, and, and sort of EPA documents. But, you know, these are real people. These are, these are farmers and homeowners and groundskeepers and... Um, people who are trusting what they've been told from this big company and who are having their lives affected because of it. And anecdotally, I mean, it's just, it's it's a terrible case, and yet it also sort of speaks to the complication of stuff like this, where there's absolutely no way his widow can definitively prove that he got it from Roundup, as, as damning as the anecdote might be. Has Monsanto been able to use that to its advantage? Well, and and that is that is certainly, you know, and I write about that in the book, it's extremely hard to ever prove one thing caused one particular disease in one person, right? Because we are, we live in the world, we are not in a, in a cage like a rat being dosed um, and having, a, you know, a control. We're out and exposed to a lot of different things, and we all have a different genetic, you know, makeup and, and medical history and things. So it's very difficult, but... There have been three trials so far, um, not the McCall case, but other individuals who have sued, um, who have suffered from non-Hodgkin lymphoma and used, used these products. And the juries unanimously have found in each case that the science that is presented, I mean, the plaintiffs present the science, and then Monsanto presents science, their attorneys. And, um, and they present all of these internal documents about Monsanto's attempts to, to cover up and manipulate and hide the science. And the juries have all determined in the end of the day that, yeah, this stuff causes cancer. And they've been pretty angry about it and have leveled, you know, over $2 billion in punitive damages. Um, now, judges have rolled that back. They think that $2 billion is excessive for punitive damages. But, but, but uh, these juries are certainly convinced. But the juries, well, even the judges. I mean, you know, federal judge, there was one federal trial so far. Um, and he said, I mean, this is a quote from the judge. The evidence at trial painted the picture of a company focused on attacking or undermining the people who raised concerns to the exclusion of being an objective arbiter of Roundup safety. And one other quote I have here, I'm using this in my in my presentation to Wash U, uh, Judge Winifred Smith, Monsanto made an ongoing effort to impede, discourage, or distort scientific inquiry and the resulting science about glyphosate and showed a conscious disregard for public health. So it's the science is is somewhat mixed. You know, our international cancer scientists think that, you know, the weight of it shows that it's a probable human carcinogen. There is some science out there that says they, it's, we don't see a connection to non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but there does see it to be a connection to multiple myeloma or acute myeloid leukemia, for instance. There's science that ties it to certain reproductive concerns. There's a, there's a mix of science out there with a range of concerns and also science that shows, yeah, it's, a, it's fine. But I think the juries, they look at that and then they look at the evidence of Monsanto's efforts to distort the science, which that is not disputable, um, that Monsanto is engaged in ghostwriting and trying to suppress science and discredit scientists and manipulate regulators. I mean, that, those are it's found in their own internal records. That's journalist Carrie Gillum. Um, she's talking with us about her book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. 
We're talking with journalist Carrie Gillum. Her book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science, came out in 2017. The paperback is out in January, and she's coming to St. Louis this Friday to give a talk at Washington University. Carrie, I want to talk to you quickly here about GMOs, genetically modified organisms. I know many people worry about these in our food supply, but what you're saying in the book is in many cases the problem is less GMOs and more the fact that they've been modified specifically to take blasts of Roundup and then they end up in our food supply. Can you walk us through that? Sure. And, you know, you're right. I mean, there are a lot of people out there, there are a lot of concerns about GMOs, um, concerns about uh, allergenicity um, because of the tinkering with the DNA and maybe the creation of novel proteins and that sort of thing. So there are people who are very concerned just about the consumption of GMOs. There are also people who are concerned about, you know, preserving sort of the sanctity of the food supply because we've seen evidence, a lot of evidence, that, that these genetically modified crops don't always, you know, stay where you want them to stay. And, um, and it, it's very hard to keep things distinct, to keep a supply of food that is, that is distinct from these uh, genetic modifications. There are people who don't like them because they represent, you know, corporate control of the food supply because they're patented. Farmers can't save seed uh, like they have traditionally. They have to pay a premium to a big company um, to do that. But, but what I, in writing about it all, I mean, I think the biggest concern, and, and many scientists do as well, is that, as you said, the, the biggest component of genetic modification around the world, when you look at planted acres and cultivated acres of, of genetically modified crops, um, most of them are designed to be herbicide tolerant. They're not designed to be more nutritious or to yield more. Um, or to fight off plant disease or anything like that. They're not designed to feed the world. They're designed to sell more glyphosate-based herbicides. Basically um, so that people can use Roundup on, on these fields. And other glyphosate-based herbicides, right. Um, but there's a whole array, you know, when they were first introduced, it was Roundup-ready, Roundup-ready soybeans, Roundup-ready corn, Roundup-ready cotton and sugar beet and alfalfa and those sorts of things. And Monsanto, you know, told investors when they rolled these out, you know, we're gonna, this is going to be great. This is going to help us hold on to the glyphosate herbicide market because the patent was expiring in the year 2000, and they rolled these out in the mid-1990s to, to keep a hold on the Roundup uh, market, the glyphosate market. Because if you, you know, combine Roundup Ready Seeds and Roundup uh, herbicides, you know, you've got this nice little package that works really great, and farmers loved it, and Monsanto made billions and billions of dollars. But what happened is, you know, created a whole then sort of cycle of environmental problems because you're putting, when you can put it directly on the crop, which was a whole, you, you couldn't do that with any other weed killer ever um, because obviously it would kill the crop. Yeah. When you can put it directly on a genetically modified crop, it, it shifts the entire, uh, you know, landscape, the entire ramification for soil health, for pollinator health, for, for biodiversity. Um, and, and that really transformed agriculture and created a lot of problems. And that's why we see so much of it in our food, so much of it in our water, in our air. It's been found in air samples by our U.S. Geological Survey. Um, that's what led to a lot of the pervasive use. 
I thought it was interesting. You had an example in your book where beekeepers are finding this in their honey, and these beekeepers are certainly not using Roundup. This is just in the pollen. And and so it's, at this point, in our entire food supply. Is this something that, as consumers, we need to worry about, say, getting cancer? You know, we don't study that. So how do we know? I mean, there really is not um, good biomonitoring. There's not monitoring of the food supply and, and tracking pesticide levels. You know, if you go to your doctor and you say, and you're getting your regular blood test and your urine test, and you say, hey, could you just check the level of glyphosate in my urine? Your doctor's probably going to look at you and say, what? <laughs> what is glyphosate? You, you check for all sorts of other, you know, check for your cholesterol levels and things like that. But it's not common in our medical, you know, system to do that. Now, more and more uh, doctors are becoming aware of it. There are tests that, you know, academics are selling universities and different groups, nonprofits. And you can have your urine tested now, probably not by your family doctor. Um, but the studies that have been done are studies that are done by uh, University of um, California, San Diego, their medical department there, tracked glyphosate levels in human urine over the last 20 years, and they found that the levels have just skyrocketed, uh, both in, in the number uh, of participants and in the, the level um, of the glyphosate found in the urine. So um, you're right, yeah. I mean, it's in our food, it's in our body, but how do we know if we're eating this, if it contributes to disease? There, there are scientists out there that say that it, it is. They've published papers on this. They're saying it's contributing to a whole array of problems with our gut bacteria and our immune system and that sort of thing, um, but we don't have robust science yet tracking that. Let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, Carrie Gillum, you were a reporter at Reuters for a long time, and then they assigned you to the agricultural beat. And originally, you had a pretty good relationship with Monsanto, and that ended up turning in a big way. When did things go south? Yeah, I mean... When I first started, I, had, I was a banking reporter, and I was assigned in 1998 to start covering Monsanto because they had just introduced these genetically modified crops and were transforming agriculture, and they're a big company. And um, so, yeah, they took me to headquarters and wooed me and dined me and wine me, you know, the whole thing, and, and took me into their corn chippers and their labs and um, I met with their top executives many times. So, you know, I became fond of a lot of them. very, very smart people, obviously, brilliant people. Um, but as I as I learned more about the business and, and started meeting more with scientists and agronomists and, and you know, agricultural economists and farmers and, and seed dealers, and just, you know, as I became more immersed in the business of big agriculture, I really started to see that what they were talking about didn't always match up on the ground. Uh, it wasn't... It wasn't the, the narrative um, that Monsanto was painting was not truthfully what was happening. And so I started including the voices of critics or the voices of people who disagreed or were trying to raise alarm bells. You know, lead scientists were very worried that this pervasive use of glyphosate was going to result in weed resistance that would really be damaging to farm fields. And, and Monsanto kept saying, that's wrong, that's crazy. Um, but it's turned out to be exactly right. <laughs> Monsanto and the EPA finally had to acknowledge that in about 2011. But um, so as I started including the voices of doubt and criticism, Monsanto became increasingly unhappy with me. And um, by about 2013, 2014, when the whole GMO labeling issue um, was really picking up, you know, heat, 
around the world or around the U.S., um, the company really started going after me. And we found through internal documents, you know, they were funding different front groups and organizations um, to target me and attack my credibility. Um, and, you know, it got pretty ugly. And <laughs> In your book, you uh, you mentioned that they had a slogan that was, let nothing go. What did that mean in a practical way? Well, what we've seen, what we can tell from their internal documents and what we see play out is that they, they have teams and teams and teams of people who monitor Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you know, your social media. Um, and anytime anything comes up, you know, an article, um, perhaps, uh, anytime anything comes up that raises a question or is criti- critical um, or someone is making a comment, they will then jump on that and they respond to it in some way. They will attack the author or they will post, you know, responses. You know, you'll see a Yahoo story and you'll see all these different responses. Um, it's basically don't ever let anything go. Don't ever let a criticism of our company's practices or products get by without us countering it in some way. The problem is when when they do it in secretive ways, where they are secretly funding individuals and front groups so it doesn't look like Monsanto is, is doing it. So it looks like there are authentic, independent, you know, individuals and organizations carrying the water for Monsanto. And uh, people don't understand. I mean, I think they, there are universities around the world that are being funded by Monsanto where we know that university professors are being directed by Monsanto, collaborating with Monsanto over the years uh, to promote their, the safety of their products and to do it in a public way without disclosing that they have been collaborating with Monsanto. We're talking with journalist Carrie Gillum. Her book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science, came out in 2017. The paperback will be out in January. She'll be in St. Louis this Friday. She's doing a free talk at Washington University at 1 p.m. Carrie, going from talking a little bit about how Monsanto helped support people who would express its party line to talking about how it deals with its critics, The Guardian obtained documents earlier this year that showed that Monsanto planned a series of actions to attack your book, including writing, quote, talking points for third parties to criticize it. What were their plans as far as this book went? Yeah, I was really surprised. I mean, I knew that things were going on to try to discredit the book. I mean, I could see that playing out, you know, on Amazon book reviews, for instance. There was one weekend when the whole, you know, slew of negative one-star book reviews, like, hit Amazon all at once. And, And then I could see on Twitter certain people who are connected to Monsanto, like, you know, chuckling about taking the book down on Amazon. So you could see that. Oh, my goodness. You must have been so (laughs) angry to see them publicly laughing about this. And yet, if you pointed out, you probably felt like you'd look like a a crazy person. I mean, did you try to fight back when you saw these one-star reviews? I I was very upset. It's my first book. And it had gotten glowing reviews. The book won three awards. It won the Rachel Carson Book Award. You know, it's gotten glowing reviews from professional book reviewers, yes. So when I saw these people who we know have taken money from Monsanto planning on Twitter and then then implementing their plan and then laughing about it, yes, I was very excited. Um, And we did, the publisher did contact Amazon, and they did remove a few that were obviously, like, from people who had never read the book, you know, had not. And, and, they, and there were several of them that just repeated sort of the same language, the same talking points. 
some of them were obviously kind of engineered. But um, yes, I mean, Monsanto had a whole spreadsheet. It was part of Project Spruce um, to discredit me, to discredit the book. Um, and, you know, it involved using third parties. They didn't want it to look like, you know, they were doing it. So they involved using third parties and sending them talking points and um, doing the book reviews. They talked about getting book reviews posted. Um, and they talked about, you know, engineering um, SEO, search engine optimization on Google so that they could get people who were searching for me or searching for my book would instead get, you know, Monsanto information um, that was negative about me. You must have felt so vindicated when these internal documents um, came out showing that this had been their strategy all along. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, it, you know, I've, I've always known. I mean, my book is right. I do my job. I've been a journalist for 30 years. Um, yes, it's it's very upsetting when a big company like this tries to work to discredit you like they have. I think I was just more shocked. I mean, I'm like one little person and they're spending, they had a consulting company in Washington, D.C. helping them. They had all of these people and all of this. You know, if they're spending this much time and energy to attack and discredit me, you know, you think of all the bigger people, right? <laughs> I mean, think of the, the top scientists in our national toxicology program who's been under attack by the chemical industry, Monsanto and others, and the scientists who are part of the World Health Organization. Monsanto did the same thing to them, but, you know, 10 times greater. Um, there have been scientists, pretty much, and I documented here in the book, any scientist anywhere in the world who has done work on glyphosate and found concerns, found problems with it, have been attacked in this way. Um, they're, they're going after scientists right now um, out on the West Coast who published a study earlier this year showing a 41% risk increase uh, for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, among high users of, of glyphosate. So, and then they're you know, going after them in the do. same way with, with these third parties. They're continuing to employ that tactic. They're, well, and see, now they've been bought by Bayer, right? I mean, a year ago they were bought by Bayer. So we don't, you know, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, they are still trying to discredit people, but are they still employing the same really deep, dirty tactics? You know, that's a question. That's not clear at that this point. Have. Okay. Right. I mean, for instance, there's a front group that's called American Council on Science and Health, and we have very clear documents that show that Monsanto was giving money to them in exchange for this group to go after people like me and Eric Lipton at the New York Times and Danny Hakem at the New York Times um, and, and, and try to discredit us. Like, that's laid out in the documents um, very clearly, um, pay-for-play exchange of money. Um, but is Bear still doing that or not? Okay. You know, um, Bear says it's not. So uh, we we don't know if this is going to be um, a cleanup of, of <laughs> the mud and the dirt and the deceit um, or not. Carrie, um, one of their chief criticisms of you is that you have crossed the line from being a journalist to being an activist. And one of the points that they have made where maybe it, it is potentially a problem is that you wrote this book while you were working for U.S. Right to Know. And that's a nonprofit that's critical of glyphosate and does advocate for organic food. Isn't that on some level the same kind of conflict of interest that you're pointing out as far as these scientists who were taking money from Monsanto and then, um, you know, claiming that they had no bias as they're doing science? Well, you're trying to know is a nonprofit research group, and we don't 
advocate for organic food. We don't advocate for a ban on glyphosate. We don't lobby lawmakers to to take up certain policies or, you know, practices or bans or, you know, we don't circulate petitions for people to, you know, be against any sort of chemical company or anything like that. I mean, what we do is we file Freedom of Information Act requests and and public records requests with universities and, and state agencies, and then we put all those documents out in a public forum for other reporters to use. Our documents have been cited, whether they're just cited today in a very big story about the Justice Department um, making a felony charge against Monsanto go away. Um, they were cited in front page New York Times stories. I mean, we're a resource for investors, you know, reporters, and the public who can see documents that sometimes cost us a lot of money to get. Um, I've had to sue the EPA twice and the FDA once to get documents, um, and we provide them for free. So does that make us an advocate. I mean, it makes us an advocate. It makes me an advocate for truth and transparency. I do believe very firmly and solidly that the public has a right to information about its food and about what's going on behind the scenes in the regulatory um, environment in Washington, D.C. So I'm advocating for truth and transparency. I'm not advocating for any particular action on a particular chemical because that's above my pay grade, <laughs> like, you know. I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a lawmaker. Uh, I'm not a regulator. So I've never said glyphosate should be banned. I was asked to testify to the European Parliament on this issue when they were looking at the re-registration, and I did so, but I made it very clear. I don't take a position on that. It's not my job. I'm a journalist. I'm just supposed to bring the information out, and then these smarter people figure out what to do with it. Carrie, one of the things in your book that I, it actually shocked me when I got to this point is for all the use of Roundup over the years, it seems like it is no longer working, that weeds have grown up that are completely resistant to this. What do you see as the future for this very controversial product? That's true. And that's exactly what, you know, we spoke about earlier. The weed scientists um, talked about this back in the early 2000s and said, this overuse, this, you know, literally just spraying this over the top of crops maybe, you know, once or twice, maybe even three times during this growing season, spraying your field, it's going to create weed resistance. And then you've got a real problem. And you have some farmers in the South who the weeds won't die, right? And they're having to spend so much money trying to bring in people to hand weed their fields, for crying out loud. And yields are dropping and the soil has just become, you know, sterile, um, almost the, the beneficial microorganisms in the soil are just struggling and so the plants are less healthy. It's just created this cycle of destruction in agriculture. So many people, or USDA and, and EPA, have all kind of recognized this problem uh, and there are various solutions that are being discussed and promoted to try to help farmers. Um, the, the answer from Monsanto, Bayer, and some of the other agrochemical companies has been, you know what, let's just make more genetically engineered crops that are, are designed to tolerate not only glyphosate, but dicamba and 2,4-D, and then let's spray all of those chemicals on them, and that'll really take care of the weeds. So that's what we're doing right now uh, in many big farm states, is we just sort of double and triple down on the amount of herbicides that that we're spraying on our on our fields. But the scientists, you know, they're telling us, Mother Nature, you know, this is a long-term solution. Uh, and it's not very good for anybody um, except the companies that are selling the chemicals. 
Carrie Gillum, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Carrie Gillum will be speaking in St. Louis this Friday at 1 p.m. at Washington University. Her talk, Monsanto Trials and Monsanto Papers, is free and it's open to the public. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.